Mark, page 716 in our church Bibles. We're going to begin reading in verse 17. I wanted to say, I wanted to say verses 13 to 16 for a couple of weeks for Jim, so I'm going to preach through this um, section here over the next, Lord willing, two Sundays. If you have an NIV, you see the title there, The Rich Young Man. <clears throat> I thought it was interesting when I was on my way to church this morning, I was scanning through the radio station trying to find some Jesus music, and I came across Kansas, Dust in the Wind, and right when I, right when I turned, as they're trying to get me straight here, uh, right when I turned to um, that song, it said, All Your Money Won't Another Minute Buy. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. I was coming in here. Okay, how's that? Pretty good? Yeah, okay. Verse 17, page 716, if your Bible's open. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, thing, with man this is impossible, not, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who will be first will be last, and the last first. So I'm wondering if we maybe should change the, go to the lapel, because this this could be kind of irritating. So let's do that. And while they're doing that, let's pray together. Father, in the morning when we rise, in the morning when we rise, in the morning when we rise, give us Jesus. Give us Jesus. Give us Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give us Jesus. Holy Spirit, please then give to us Jesus from these verses. Convince, convert, encourage bring glory to Jesus and soothing security to your people only because of Jesus. And Father, please help me, the chief of all sinners and the least of all God's people, to preach Jesus for Jesus' sake. We ask this 
Amen. Good. Nope, we're not going to do that. <laughs> good. Is that, is that better? Okay. Yeah, that sounds better. How about good? Good. Well, there's a truth that Jesus gives us here, which <clears throat> we need to set straight before we fully unpack this text. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when Mark records for us the words of Jesus, do you see it there if your Bible's open? How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, which was his response to all that had taken place thus far. The disciples' reaction, you'll see that there in verse 24, the reaction to the truth of Jesus was amazement. And that translation really doesn't do justice to the Greek word used here. In fact, one translation uses the word staggered. They were staggered. Because the original word is defined as to be in shock, having this idea of putting a person back on their heels or stopping them dead in their tracks. So when Jesus said how hard it is for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God, it literally shut down the disciples' internal operating operating system, which was holding them, listen carefully, this was holding them to something they assumed was true, but was being exposed by Jesus as a lie. Now that's very, very important. They were holding internally to something they had understood always as truth, which was exposed by Jesus as a lie. If you like, they framed their life, at least up to that point, with a lie. And this is the lie. As children of their times, first century Judaism believed that wealth was a sure sign of God's blessing. A sure sign that they were doing right, and therefore a byproduct, listen carefully, of their works. God was giving them wealth. And Jesus tells them here, not so fast. To be rich actually gets in the way of God's salvation. To be rich gets in the way of entering the kingdom. It makes it hard. It makes it difficult. Nearly impossible is the sense of the word that Jesus says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, affirms this in 1 Timothy 6. And he says, there are those who have been robbed of the truth. And they think that godliness is a means to financial gain, right? So if I do X and I do Y and Z, then God will be good to me and give me money. Lots of it. He goes on to write. Therefore, those who want to get rich, gosh, you know, I don't really want to get rich. I just want enough money to make me feel sheltered and to be comfortable. You mean like the rich who think money will give them that? Loved ones, money was not given to help us feel safe. At least it shouldn't. Paul writes, those who want to get rich fall into temptations and a trap and into many ignorant and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered, drifted from the faith. From the faith. And pierced themselves with many griefs. Therefore, when Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, because of their bad theology... The disciples, verse 26, do you see it there? They're in shock. And they say, who then can be saved? I mean, if it's hard for the rich and the rich are good with God because apparently wealth is a sign of God's blessing on them, then what about us? And let's be honest, shall we? Not much has changed. Sermons, seminars, studies coming to us as biblical and Christian, personal misinterpretations, misunderstandings, and yeah, even manipulations of the Bible trying to infect the church of Jesus Christ. And just like first century Judaism, maybe some of you think, you know, if my money situation is good, something for sure must be right. And if my money situation is bad, something for sure must be wrong because they say that's how God works. 
And this line of thinking could come individually, it could come to families, and of course it could come corporately as in the church of Jesus Christ. Thinking that lots of money means God for sure is happy with us, therefore we must be doing something right. And low on money means for sure God is mad at us, and therefore we must be doing something wrong. Until you actually read your Bible. And consider, for example, the book of Revelation to the church of Smyrna. Jesus, the Son of God, the head of the church, says, I know your afflictions and your poverty because you're living with the fallout of your loyalty to me. I know your poverty, yet Jesus says, you are rich. And to the church of Laodicea, who said, you, we are rich. But Jesus, the Son of God, the Alpha Omega, the head of the church, says, no, you're actually wretched, and you're pitiful, and you're poor. Why? Because of your lukewarmness towards me. Now, in reading our Bibles, we find that there are upright men and women with great wealth, and there are upright men and women with very little or no wealth. For the glory of God, that was their given lot. Paul, writing to the pride-filled Corinthian church, told them, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, everything you have, everything, is only as a result of the gracious hand of God. You're a steward of it. You're not a master of it. So remember, you're going to give an account for it to God, just as we all will with all parts of our life. And we do know that it can be easy to love wealth, to give it God-like powers over our life and over our thinking and pursue it. Because if you have money, you can go to more places than most, and you can stay there longer than most. It gets you access to things many people will never know. You can keep your slippers on all day, right? Making leisure life seem like a real life. None of the common life worries that the common folks have. I've been reading this great book, uh, The Temptation of Innocence, Living in the Age of Entitlement. And listen to some of the titles of the, of the chapters. Is Babyhood Man's Future? <laughs> the, incredibly sh- the Incredible Shrinking Man. Quote, Common, the transfer into adulthood, the privileges of childhood, the desire for security, for play, greed, the need to constantly be in charge, full satisfaction, but the least of the obligations of life, i.e. babyhood. Wealth can make you feel secure. And wealth gets in the way of the word of God, doesn't it? Isn't that what Jesus said? Life's worries, life's riches, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires of your things makes uh, the word be choked. So the gap between proclamation and application grows larger and not smaller as it should. And wealth is great for the ego. It can leave some with the impression that the richer you are, the wiser you are. So you're wiser than most, a bit savvier than most. Maybe you're a harder worker, more frugal, or you're a better thinker than most because they think or people say God has blessed them more than than most. Works-based wealth. Remember the movie Fiddler on the Roof? If you've never seen it, please, you should see it. There's a great scene where Tavia, he's one of the main characters, and he's singing this song, If I Were a Rich Man. Remember, dear God, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, that it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either, right? So what would have been so terrible if I had a small fortune, right? And then he goes, if I were a rich man, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, I'd play all day. And then at the end of the song, and when the question comes to the rich man, it won't make one bit of difference if I answer the question right or wrong, because when you're rich, they think you really know, right? 
They think you really know. And of course, the words of Jesus, the life of Jesus, this true story of Jesus and the rich man just lays all that muddle-headedness to rest. And can you imagine if you're a Syrian refugee right now and you're in a holding camp and you hear the gospel and by God's grace you respond to the gospel, you become a Christian and if you think like the disciples thought, okay, I'm going to be really good and I'm going to be good and God, I'm ready, bring it on, I'm going to get underneath the spout where, where the wealth comes out. Every time it rains, it rains now for me, pennies from heaven. It was Martin Luther who said everyone needs three conversions, conversion of the mind, conversion of the heart, and conversion of the wallet, the laying of one's money at the feet of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, we lose everything of value when we lose Christ as our supreme treasure. And because we become like the God we worship and money is dead, we dare not use money as a measuring stick for our standing with God in anything. Why not? Jesus said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Are you planning to get rich? Are you wealthy right now? Listen to Jesus. And listen to J. Campbell White. If a man is growing in wealth, nothing but constant generous giving can keep him from becoming small in soul. All right. We needed to know that. It sets our compass through this story and we move through this hex. Now, this obviously is an extremely important story and one of the reasons is it's in three of the four Gospels. Only John's Gospel um, is this story not recorded for us. So we have three points. It's Memorial Day weekend. I thought I'd be a little clever. First point, what a man. What a man. What a mighty good man, right? Clearly this young man um, is rich. And he has many of the attributes people would just give anything for. Beyond this, if you're thinking this through, if Jesus was looking to add to his followers as he was and as he is, this rich young ruler we are told of in verses 17 to 22 surely would have been, at least on the surface, one of the best candidates starting out than most of the people that Jesus encountered in his ministry, right? So for example, he had none of the baggage like Zacchaeus had. Zacchaeus was a cheater and a liar, He had none of the baggage like the woman at the well had, right? She had a closet full of ex-husbands and she was living with a person now. He had no terrible disease. No demon was keeping him bound. He had none of that. We're told he was young. That's Matthew's gospel. We're told that he was rich, all three gospels. And we're told that he was a ruler, more than likely a synagogue ruler. That's Luke's gospel. Put it together. He's rich, he's young, he's religious, and he's a moral leader. Furthermore, you see this in verse 17, he's a man of passion, right? Which is probably why in light of what Jesus said in verses 13 to 17 about you can't receive the kingdom unless you become like a little child, that probably struck him. Verse 17, he reacts by running to Jesus. He's also sincere. Verse 17, he fell on his knees. And the Greek word has the idea of supplication. So he's, in essence, he's praying, I'm falling on my knees to you because I need some help. He's passionate. He's sincere. He's likable. Verse 17, good teacher. Right? We're all, we all know manners can go a long way. And of course, he's religious. He's concerned about his eternal life. What must I do to inherit 
eternal life, revealing to us, at least there, that the things of time and superabundance, they cannot satisfy, they cannot quiet the question of eternity. Still, this young man is every mother's dream, isn't he? But he's every jealous person's nightmare. I mean, if you like, this is Tom Cruise and Tom Brady and Prince Harry and Mark Zucker and an altar boy, all compressed into a rich, young ruler who, and I love saying this, he could probably have run a mile in four minutes, right? He probably plays the piano, first chair. He probably was married to Angelina Jolie and was well into his second successful startup company with time to have a joint venture with six other nations to give fresh water to help the destitute poor, right? That's him. Right, that's him in a phrase. What a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. He's young, he's rich, a leader, intense, sincere, polite, and religious. This is going to be the easiest conversion in the history of the world. And can't you see the disciples, you know, what we know of them so far? Oh man, looks like we're going to have to move down the ladder here. Because it looks like Superboy's joining the team, right? And maybe a little conjecture here with Jesus. Jesus looks at this fine young man, and he looks at the 12, and he's like, young man, where were you two years ago? You know, we could really use a guy like you on our team. And my guys smell like fish, and they behave like children, and you smell like a flower, and you have an MBA. <laughs> this is going to be great. But you know what? This is the only person in the whole of the New Testament of whom it was ever said that he went away sad from the person of Jesus. Think of that. He went away sad from all that goodness and all that love and truth right in front of his eyes. He had a personal encounter with Jesus. And he leaves sad. And you know, I was thinking, if you're the kind of person, maybe even a deeply religious person who thinks, okay, if there's a God and he's good, surely God rewards good people as long as they do good and sincere and they're trying their best, right? A good God rewarding good people who are sincere and they do their best. This story would alarm you. I bet also if you relate to God right now as a Christian through your works, I bet this story will alarm you. On a human level, he is the best of the best. And you know, when you speak to people about Jesus, you often find many things, uh, but one of the things you see most clearly is they tell you, as long as I'm sincere and I'm doing my best, everything's going to be fine. Good God rewards good people doing their best. R.C. Sproul, uh, in, uh, during an evangelistic campaign, he said 80% of the people who answered the question, if God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? Sproul says 80% of the people answered something like, I've tried to live a good life. I'm not a criminal. I've never really hurt one, anyone. I try to go to church most Sundays. I believe in God. I love my family. Put them first. All externals. No meaningful mention of the depth of their depravity and how Jesus and his death on the cross is the only acceptable payment for their acceptance and their continued acceptance with God. In short, the kind of people who rely on their performance rely on their obedience, rely on their goodness, externals, to grant them access to God's heaven, to put them right with God and secure God's favor all by their obedience. Just like everything else, they've earned it. They're going to keep earning it. Loved ones, do you know this? The devil would give you all the morality in the world, right? He would give you all the morality in the world just as long as he can keep you from seeing your need of Jesus. 
Just as long as he keep you from glorying in the gospel and putting no confidence at all in your flesh. In fact, one commentator wrote on this story, this young man is part of a special group scarcely touched by the gospel. They know the gospel. They heard it. They may have some affinity for it, but they've never actually responded to it in a real way. They don't rely on it. They don't frame how they see the world, how they see themselves, and how they see God and how they see others in light of the gospel. Therefore, here's the byproduct of this. Like this rich, young, religious ruler, they're blind to their own sin, and they're shut out of the kingdom of God. Pride running through this young man's veins, nourished by his dishonesty, religiously devoted to his prosperity. It's keeping him from Jesus and the very answer to his most important question. That's point number one. What a man, what a man, what a mighty good man, but just a man. And so, as a man, he's not good enough for God. No one is. That's the point Jesus will make. This is why we need Jesus to be for us what we cannot be before God. Good. Good. Point number two. See it there? Second verse, same as the first. Uh, That's, by the way, that's Herman's Hermit. If you want a good laugh this Memorial Day weekend, Google that uh, song and watch the video on YouTube. It's so cute. But anyway, this is why I said this. Because the pattern that Jesus uses here is the exact same pattern that he followed when the Pharisees asked the question in verse 2 of chapter 10. In other words, second verse, same as the first. When the Pharisees come to Jesus to ask their question, Jesus answered their question with his own question. And then he took them straight to the word of God, straight to first principles, to respond to that question. Jesus, following the exact same pattern here, is being asked that question by the rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Same thing. He replies to the young man's question, first with his own question, why do you call me good? Then he goes straight to the word of God. Do you see that there, verse 18? No one's good except God. And then he takes them right to the law of God, verse 19. And what Jesus is doing here, he's laying the groundwork to force this man to understand, listen, this is who you actually are. And this is who I actually am. And that's going to be the first step for you to be able to enter into and receive, receive eternal life. That takes us to our third point. When opportunity knocks, open the door, right? Because this rich young ruler who apparently was incredibly good at seizing business opportunities, he's going to be given three opportunities by the Lord Jesus Christ to get right the biggest opportunity in his life and to see it's not about what he needed to do, but was about him seeing his sin in relation to God, in relation to God's law, and to be honest, in order that he could see his Savior and his King And then he could walk through that door marked death, which all of us will have to walk through and enter safely into eternal life with God. Which was his question. Verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And and you know, let's not be too hard on him. It's an understandable question in light of his life. He was a young man. He was rich. He had all kinds of acumen. He apparently worked very hard to make a success of himself. He read his Longfellow. Remember this? The heights by great men reached and kept were not attained by sudden flight, but they, while their companions slept, were toiling upward in the night. 
right? This is this guy. He set his goal. He put his time and his energy and effort to train himself to accomplish his goal. And he goes for it. He gave it his all. And he got it all. But not enough. Because what's his question? I want to enter into eternal life. So he says to Jesus, essentially, listen, you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I always have. Just coach me up, Jesus. Coach me up here. And you know, so many people think that way, right? So Christianity is like a, a, a jockey and the horse and God is the jockey and he keeps whipping us into shape harder, faster as the basis for your inheritance of eternal life with God and for some of us as the basis of our relationship with God. Loved ones, that is not what is required to become a Christian. That is not what is needed to live as a Christian. And so Jesus wants to help this rich young ruler see who he is and then understand who Jesus is. And I want you to notice this as if your life depended on it. Verse 17, you don't go from what do I need to do to inherit eternal life and then straight to verse 21, come follow me. No. Because you see in verses 18 to 21, this sincere but impetuous young man has to think and reflect very deeply. He's going to be given three opportunities to confront some profound misunderstandings about himself, about God, and about Jesus before he can inherit eternal life and quiet that voice which apparently his great wealth could not shut down. Three opportunities. So he could cry out for mercy. Let's have a look. Number one, opportunity number one, verse 18. So Jesus in response says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. So with Jesus' counter question and the use of the word good, the shallowness of this young man's question is being challenged. And Jesus tells him, look, if you want to talk about goodness, you have to talk about God. He's the only one good. You see, the Greeks used the word good free and easy. A good man, the best of men. That was a common expression. But the Jews never did so. On six occasions in the Old Testament, it was written, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Meaning the title good was only given to God. God was a source of all goodness. Therefore, when you saw a rabbi, you never referred to a rabbi as good. When you saw a Jewish scribe, you saw a Jewish teacher, you never referred to them as good. Why? Because only God was good. So you didn't call anyone good but God. So I want you to see there is some very unflattery, or let's, let's say it like this, very unjewish like flattery taking place here with this rich young ruler. Right? I was thinking all week long as I was studying this, boy, this sounds a lot like some business techniques that he's trying to use on Jesus. I don't know for sure, but they just kept coming up in my mind. And so Jesus will not be patronized by this young man's flattery. You remember the old saying, flattery is like perfume. You can sniff it, sniff it, but you mustn't drink it, right? Jesus won't drink it. And the conclusion the young man should have come to uh, when Jesus said only God is good should have been, oh my, then I'm not good. The light should have come on. He should have therefore felt the gaze of God's absolute purity into his life like a searchlight exposing all his sins, right? That's what the word of God does. Sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrates, judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So he should have said, I'm not good. But he was blind, right? I mean, what would it be like to be so good that you never, ever had lied? 
that you never had a rebellious moment in your life? What would it be like to have never nurtured bitterness and hatred in your heart? What would it be like to never have gossiped, to never have harmed anyone, to have never been wrong and all your intents to be right? What would it be like to never feel jealousy or envy when we hear of another family or another person's success? When, when Gorvabel said, every time I hear of another person's success, part of me dies, he was being honest. And you see the right reaction when the goodness and the purity of God is measured against our lives was given us by someone. It was Isaiah in chapter 6, and Isaiah was a preacher. And remember what he said? The goodness and the purity of God passed before him, and he said, woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's honest. How can I think about what my heart is like when I see the purity of God and the nature of his judgment? Woe to me, I'm finished. And furthermore, who is set before this young man? Why, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolute perfection and Jesus is like a mirror, right? And you see your own impurity as he passes before you. Jesus was perfect, he was good, he welcomed the outcast. He touched sick people. He showed no favoritism to the rich and the powerful. Remember that wonderful encounter where 4,000 men needed to be fed and 5,000 men needed to be fed and the disciples were like, we don't have anything. And Jesus says, let's feed them anyway. And he feeds them. Still, when you encounter Jesus, you feel your own rottenness. Don't you? Peter, get away from me, Lord. As Jesus comes to him, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Because only Jesus, only Jesus models the absolute purity of of God. But it doesn't stop the man, does it? There's none so blind that will not see. He still thinks he's on his way to the red carpet treatment in heaven once Jesus gives him the to-do list, right? Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. When he should have said, oh, Jesus, I'm not good, am I? I can see that now. Apparently, I'm going to need lots of help. That's opportunity number one. Opportunity number two, you see it there? Verse 19, so he missed the first opportunity to see himself compared to the purity of God. And now Jesus gives him a second chance to see himself rightly compared to the law of God. So in effect, Jesus says, verse 19, okay, you want me to tell you what you need to do? Okay, here it is. Keep the commandments. You know them. And Jesus gives him some of the law, not all the law, from the second tablet of the commandments. The ones which teach us how God wants us to love our neighbors, right? How do we love our neighbors God's way as we love ourselves? You see them there in verse 19. And in the young man's reply, verse 20, teacher, right? You got to love this guy. He drops the good now, right? He's a quick learner. You You don't get to be where he's at by being slow on the trigger. No more good, just teacher. All these I've kept since I was a boy. And can't you hear his mother's voice? You tell him, son. You tell him, right? He's an Ivy Leaguer, Jesus. Be careful here. And as you think through this, I bet externally he had kept all the law. I bet. In fact, he reads a lot like a person we read of in the book of Acts. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. Great background. Spectacular education. Real go-getter. He could write to the church in Philippi looking back at his life. I was a blameless Jewish man. Not a believer in Jesus. Not yet. When it came to the issues of legalistic righteousness, the externals, he said, I was faultless. In other words, I had it all down. Kids, you know this, right? When I was supposed to go, I went. When I was supposed to stay, I stayed. When I was supposed to stay away, I stayed away. Money in the box. 
bottom in the chair, meals on wheels when needed. That was me, doing everything externally correctly. But then he writes in Philippians 3, all those things, I can't even say what they mean to me now. It's actually a dirty word. It was a dirty word. All those things mean nothing to me comparison comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Savior and my King. Do you understand what Paul's saying? All his morality, that external morality, was garbage to him compared to Christ, to know Christ, and to be found in Christ. Wow. You ever thought that through? Wow. So what happened to this fellow? Well, you probably know it was the Apostle Paul. Well, he saw Jesus, the only one who had completely fulfilled God's law, and he saw himself as a lawbreaker. He shut his mouth, and he was saved. Loved ones, the law of God, writes Paul in Romans 3.21, is meant to silence everybody as it puts everyone in accounts before God. But it doesn't do that to this rich young ruler, does it? He said, verse 20, all these I have kept since I was a boy, right? I've done it all. (laughs) I was thinking, if, if this was John 8 and the rich young ruler was there and Jesus said, you without sin cast the first stone, this young man probably would have thrown the first stone and because of his background, he probably would have hit the woman right between her eyes. He never fails, at least externally he doesn't fail. And so in response to this young man saying, I've kept these laws, look at that amazing sentence, verse 21. Just look at it. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I find that one of the most compelling sentences in all of the New Testament. And Mark records that for us because because it was such a compelling look. I mean, I wonder what that look look like. This is what came to my head. A long time ago when I was a kid, sorry about this, but it just, it was the first thing that popped in my head. I was with my dad on a Saturday. He was at his office and we were coming back and he said, no, Joe, I'm going to give you this box of root beer mugs. It was glass. And he said, Joe, I want you to hold the box. And I was like, yes, dad, I'll hold the box. And Joe, I don't want you to drop the box. Dad, I will not drop the box. Hold the box. Don't drop the box. This is going to be easy. He gives me the box. This is not a lie. Two steps. I don't know what happened. I dropped the box. There's glass everywhere. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. My dad is going to, this is like, and I remember my dad. He, you know, he looked at me. Kind of like, you're a lot like your mother. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry. He looked at me and he's like, let's go get another box. And we got another box. The word there looked It has the idea of gazed. In some Greek plays, it was used for romance. In other words, Jesus Christ is giving this young man his full attention after his silly remark. Why? Because Jesus Christ is looking at someone for whom he came to die for. Right? He's looking at someone with all the love in his heart of whom he came to die for. Jesus loves sinners. That's the very nature of the gospel, that Jesus came into the world to express God's love for men and women who have ignored him, who have openly rebelled against him, and Jesus, in expressing his love for them, reveals it supreme, supremely where? 
in his death on the cross. Do you understand that? That's the gospel. At the cross, we learn that every time we have failed to obey God, Christian or not, every time we have broken the commands and we know what they are, still we willingly break them. Every time we put something else or someone else before God, Jesus Christ just looks at us and loves us. You need that. I need that. Because he took the punishment on the cross for us. The law silences us in our guilt The gospel silences us in our boast and the cross of Jesus Christ affirms for us that we are loved. Period. Not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Listen to your Bible. 1 Peter says it like this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John, right? This is love. Not that we love God, that he loved us and sent himself as a payment, a propitiation for our sins. So we never bring our righteousness to the table. Not to God's table. We bring our unrighteousness. And then the door is open to eternal life with God. And the young man fails to see that. Do you fail to see that? Do you fail to see that? Jesus is reaching out in unmeasurable compassion to him and to you. And the rich, young, talented man can't see it. Again, I ask you, do you see it? Do you see it? Love is behind everything that Jesus is doing. And our obedience can't get us into heaven because you have to receive the kingdom. You cannot do something to earn the kingdom. Christianity's lived so much better that way. Another opportunity missed, though. Finally, final sentence as we look at opportunity number three, verse one, one thing you lack, or verse 21, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Now let's be very, very clear. This is not a prerequisite to become a Christian, right? Giving all your money away. That would take everything I've said and put it in the garbage. Works cannot earn God's favor. The point here is Jesus is like a master physician, right? So you go to the doctor and you say, I hurt, and he begins to touch. Touch there. Does that hurt? No. Does that hurt? No. Does that hurt? No. Does that hurt? Ah, that's it. That's the spot. Young man, give up all your wealth. Oh, that's the spot. You said you wanted to do something to inherit eternal life. That's it. That's what you need to do. And it's not the same spot for everybody, is it? There are many different spots. But here Jesus is simply showing this young man, okay, that's what comes first for you. And it's not God, is it? It's your money. And Jesus' final words is telling him that even though you say you've kept all the commandments, you're actually guilty of breaking the first. You shall have no other gods before you. And you do. So you have another God in your life and it's really dead. You treat it like it's alive, but it's dead. And you can't part with your money. And if you think about it, because we need to think about this, this is by dent of principle, it's the same message Jesus has been given all through this gospel. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. In this case, repent means go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's what he needed to do. Turn away from your present allegiance and you come follow me. And again, I don't want you to think that Jesus is saying to this young man, do some merit-based work. And as a result of your merit-based work, then you're going to be rewarded with eternal life. Because it's not uncommon for the text, you know, to be preached that way. Or at least, you know, everybody go home and start writing lots of checks. 
And lots of checks and everything will be fine with God. No, that's too easy. No, Jesus is saying, young man, you need to smash your idol. You need to smash your idol. He said he kept the commands. Jesus said, no, you've broken the first. And actually, you've broken the second one, right? You made this uh, money an idol for you. His first allegiance was to his wealth, to its accumulation, and it's to his maintenance. And that's how he became rich in wealth, but poor in soul. So, as you suspect, verse 22, it's very sad. At this, this, the man's face fell. He went away sad. Actually, face falling and sad is actually one Greek word. It means deep emotional pain. Deep grief and sorrow. Maybe, maybe a hint of anger. But whatever, he had intense feelings for his great wealth. Right? Intense feelings. Feelings for something other than God. It was his first love, his endless love, if you like. And so Jesus is showing the young man, hard in, your life is all about now, and it's all about your wealth, and it's all about yourself. Right? All about now, all about wealth, and all about yourself. That's pretty much modern man and women, isn't it? But we can't be so hard on the guy, right? Let's put ourselves in his shoes. And let's say that we're Christian, but there's some idols that we need to smash. Money, you need to stop, empty the bank, come follow me. Preaching, stop, we're going to put you somewhere else in the kingdom, you come follow me. Hunting, fishing, athletics, you're going to have to move to the city. Hey, leave your retirement, go back to work, I need you at that place. Follow me there. You see? Would that be easy? Careful. (laughs) Would that be easy? Would we, maybe most of us, be in deep emotional pain if that were our own idol that we needed to smash? And still, with all of this rich young ruler's goodness and wealth, as he understood both, he still needed to ask the question. Because, and listen carefully, especially younger people, all the externals, all the things of time and wealth cannot appease the longings of a man or a woman. Right? I'm doing everything right. Why do I feel so empty? If the path to life with God is doing good, then what's going on? Because I'm doing pretty good. I'm always dissatisfied. Nothing's ever right. Why? I should be fine. Well, young man, who told you that? Jesus looks at him and says, I want you to put all your confidence in me. Don't you wish the story would have ended like this? If the young man would have said, you're right, Jesus, you're right. Gosh, I was fooling myself. Can, can you please help me here? I can't do what you just asked. And what am I going to do? Because I'm actually a little afraid now. And Jesus looks at him and loves him and says, well, young man, you don't need to do anything. I'm going to do it all for you on the cross. And you're just going to have to repent and believe and receive. And the young man, you know, with all that type A personality, that's it. That's it. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, oh, new life will come, but it's never going to replace me because it comes because of me. It comes through me because life now and life eternal 
He's always only in me. Only in Jesus. We have an extra day for the weekend. More time to consider those idols. Get out the hammer. Start smashing. And enjoy the privileges of grace. Let's pray together. Thank you for your attention. Father, all we have, all our excellencies are borrowed excellencies. They come from you. Our standing in Christ, our body, our soul, our time, our talents, our character, our wealth, our poverty, our success, our wife, our children, our friends, our work, our present, our future, our end. They're all yours. So take them. They are yours. And we are yours. Both now and forevermore. And may we set before our eyes the Lord Jesus Christ. And his beauty and his love and his cross and his resurrection and his return. And may we be given the grace to live within that framework as long as the days that we have been given from you choir. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all who believe, both now and forevermore. Amen.